You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck Out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Dean. Please be seated. Sean and I were talking earlier, and he said, man, this is probably one of the toughest passages in the Sermon on the Mount. And I said, no lie. Thanks a lot. <laughs> uh, and and uh, honestly, I have been wrestling with this text, wrestling, wrestling, wrestling to make sure that the truth of the word comes out clearly for us today. Um, many of you know, maybe some of you don't, I grew up in eastern Nevada. How many of you knew that? A little town called Ely in mining country, mining and cattle ranching. That was about it. And every time I study scripture, it reminds me of mining process. Because I grew up by one of the biggest open pit mines in the world. And they go in and they blow up a mountain. And then they dig all that dirt up and put it in big trucks and then they haul it someplace else and they run it through a bunch of chemical and physical processes to get a little bit of ore. To, and they were mining precious metals, mostly copper when I was growing up, but gold and silver. And they would get ounces of precious metal for the tons of material they went through to get it. And so I'm reminded that every time I study scripture, that you dig, you dig, you dig, you dig, you dig, you dig, you blow it up, you filter it down, and you get to the truth of the word. Uh, So hopefully there's a couple of nuggets in this one today, I'm hoping. Can we pray before we get started? Lord, I do thank you as we've sung and as Dean just prayed for the truth of your word. Lord, help us to rightly understand it today. Help me, Lord, to communicate clearly the truths that you have here for us, for your glory and your honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When my first wife and I were in missions training, we knew a young man. I haven't seen him for 30 years, but he did quite a bit of rock climbing. And he would talk about his climbs, but especially the part of the climb called the crux. The crux was the most difficult section of the route. 
It was the place of greatest danger. And I'm pretty sure you have the picture, those pictures you've seen of a person climbing the rock and they're hanging literally upside down and you're trying to figure out how they're staying on there. Or the picture where they're apparently stuck with nowhere to go on a sheer face and they see something that looks like a handhold and they have to physically let go and jump to get that. They place everything on that move. Um, there's a more specific use of crux, though, even than that. And it's a, a legal use. And in, in legal use, the crux is a piece of information that's necessary for you to resolve before the case as a whole can be resolved. There's this one thing that's got to clearly be laid out. I think that both senses of crux like that, the climbing crux and the legal crux, are here today in this passage. Uh, verse 1 certainly feels like the most difficult and dangerous portion of the route we're going to take. And I also think that there's another essential point that needs to be resolved in order to proceed all the way through the route. So here's the climbing crux. What does Jesus mean when he says, judge not? Here's the legal crux. What is the context and who exactly is he talking to? Those two things will make this passage, I think, clearly make text, make sense. As I studied this text, I was reminded that Jesus is truly a master communicator. I geek out on language use. I know I'm a band teacher, but I love language, and I love playing with language, and I love seeing things well-designed and used well, and this passage does that. Jesus uses two literary devices. We'll talk about them later. One's called a chiasmus, the other is called hyperbole to help us understand the importance of these verses. Now, I, I promise to not make it this nerdy, weird, boring academic thing, but we're going to look at those two devices, all right? Uh, well, as they come up in the text, not now. So just anticipate. So here we go. Verse 1. We're going to start with the climbing crux. Defining judgment takes us in two possible directions either discerning and distinguishing or condemning and passing judgment. Those are the two options that this word defines down to. Discerning and distinguishing or condemning and passing judgment. Let's start with the idea of discerning and distinguishing. If we look at verse 1, from the perspective of discerning and distinguishing, judge not means that we make no value judgments using our critical faculties. That's where that takes us. We can't say that anything is bad or wrong. This thought runs along the lines of these statements. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. You do you, I'll do me. What's true for you may not be true for me, who are you to tell me what is right and wrong? Guessing you've heard one or more of those at some point in your life in a discussion with others. This sounds a lot like postmodernism. Postmodernism rejects the idea of objectivity and universal truisms in favor of 
subjective experience, flexible realities. Postmodernism tells us that judgments, truisms, are tools of oppression imposed by power structures. And so the church and us as believers just become another power structure because we're trying to tell people that there are things that God calls sin. I believe this is a real danger that the church faces today because we're surrounded by this thought style. And those thoughts, the thoughts of the world, often and continually creep into the church. Would Jesus really tell us to abandon objective truth? I don't think so. Even just based on this passage. Drop down to verse 6 for just a minute. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack. If we're not able to use our faculties to discern good and bad, right and wrong, to make judgments, then how can we say that anything is holy, which Jesus does right here? How are we going to know what is valuable like pearls if we don't judge and evaluate. So I don't think, as we look at this passage, that Jesus is saying, cast aside your faculties, cast aside evaluating. Doesn't seem at all to be the sense of what's going on here. So let's more scripture. Romans 12:9 says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Discernment going on, good and evil. In 1 Corinthians 5.1, Paul writes, It is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you. Paul's clearly making a judgment about what is moral and immoral, something that is right and has an appropriate and an inappropriate place. Galatians 2 Verses 11 to 14, Paul confronts Peter. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, there's a judgment, an evaluation. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He's evaluating Peter's behavior and seeing that it comes short of what God intends. Galatians 5, 19 to 23, the work of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. That those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Philippians 4 says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, 
If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. I think it's pretty clear in all of these passages that the truth of the word of God is being used by the power to evaluate and discern. There's a difference between things that are right and things that are wrong. And those things are applied and used in dealing with other people. So judge not can't mean not ever calling anything bad. It can't mean not saying what you're doing is not appropriate. That definitely is not the meaning here. So let's look at the second possible meaning, which is judgment, not judgment, condemnation. This is where you become the judge, the jury, and the executioner of another person. I keep track of your wrongs. I judge you specifically to show that I'm morally superior. I'm better than you. I'm right. You're not. It's a fault-finding, condemning attitude that's often combined with a blindness to my own failings. This is the attitude Jesus is talking about when he tells us, judge not. If you don't want condemnation to come upon you from others, but more specifically from God, don't be condemning of others. That's what he says in verse 1. So this is the climbing crux, the dangerous spot to navigate. Be sure that you are evaluating, discerning, and distinguishing between good and evil and right and wrong, but be equally sure that you're not putting yourself in a place of moral superiority by condemning others. Remember that you too are a sinner like them, saved at grace is the difference, what Christ has accomplished. Well, that doesn't seem so hard, but there's more. This is where the chiasmus comes in. Chiasmus is a reflection. It's an idea that goes here and then reverses itself and comes back where it started. Okay? Um, it's a crossing point, kind of like an X, that point in the center. It's used to reinforce the importance of what somebody's saying, to, to drive a point home. Uh, interestingly, the entire book of Ecclesiastes is in chiasmus form. It goes to the center, and then it takes the ideas and takes you back to where you started. And as I was studying, I saw an article showing that the, the book of Matthew is also that same chiasmus form. Now, please forgive me for geeking out. I think this is really cool. Structure makes things make sense, holds things together. I'll try not to focus just on that. Here's the point, though. This reminds me that God's a God of order, a God of structure. He doesn't just make things happenstance. There's purpose and design behind what he does, and this just reinforces that to me and makes me stand in greater awe of who he is. So we're going to try a few chiasmi together. I'll start them. You're going to see if you can finish them, okay? And... We're going to start easy, but we're also going to do this out loud. So this is not rhetorical questions. You're going to respond, okay? Okay. okay. Fair enough. That's enough. <laughs> when the going gets tough, tough gets going. well done. Well done. 
Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask. How many of you are old enough to remember that speech? Thank you, Logan. (laughs) I feel way better right now. How about one from Scripture, Matthew 2, 27? The Sabbath was made for man, not... Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and... That's Matthew 23, 12. You get the idea, right? That's chiasm. Now you can all use it and you can sit in amazement every time you see it in Scripture now too. Here's two more from the Sermon on the Mount that are important to understand this passage today. Matthew 5, 7, which we went through just a little while ago. Blessed are the merciful for they'll receive mercy. And in chapter 6, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive those forgive our debtors. So now, Matthew chapter 7, where we are now, and verses 1 and 2, we have three chiasms. First one is, judge not, so you won't be judged. Jesus strengthens the importance of not judging by making it reflexive like that, pointing it back. If you don't if you don't want to be judged, don't be judgmental. If you don't want to be treated harshly, don't treat others harshly. That's the focus he's doing here. And that's what he goes on to amplify in verse 2. With the measure you measure out, it will be measured back to you. With the judgment you use, you will be judged. As I looked at the measure being measured to you, I was, I, I was taken back to when we lived in Milwaukee. We used to go out every fall and pick apples. There were several orchards around, and we picked bushels, usually two or three bushels of apples. My wife, my first wife, wouldn't quit until she had every bit of everything taken care of. If there was an apple left on the tree, we weren't done. But there was a price for these bushels of apples, so her second goal was how many apples can you actually fit in a bushel before they won't stay on anymore? Well, the orchard's definition was a bushel is flat with the top. We were a little above and beyond, and we got charged accordingly. So we figured that out. They're going to charge us extra. That's fine. But point being is bushel is a specific measurement. It's about 60 pounds. For, for you Peter Piper fans, it's four pecks. This is pretty clear. We can't make ourselves look and feel better by condemning others. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. We can't say, I'm not that bad. Look at so-and-so. Don't judge lest you be judged. We can't make ourselves the judge of others. God's the true agent of judgment. He's the only one that can do the judging. As God forgives those who forgive, he condemns those who condemn others. We can evaluate truth, we can present truth, but we don't have the right to be the one who passes condemnation on to somebody else. 
Now we get to hyperbole. Moving on to verse 4. And I'm pretty sure you all know that hyperbole is exaggeration for effect, right? Fishermen, it's your native language. You know, man, I, I caught a fish once that must have been this far from shore. Or my favorite, I caught a fish once that was this big. That's hyperbole. It's possibly my native language, too. I've got a student here today that might be able to attest to that. They've probably heard it once or twice. Verses 3 and 4 present, I think, a textbook example of hyperbole. And I just sat and chuckled studying through this. I hope you do. I hope you get the absurdness of the example Jesus uses and how masterful this is. Verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not, not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye where there is a log in your own eye? A speck's a splinter. A speck's a piece of dust. A speck is something that's irritating. You've probably had it, right? Woodworkers. You're cutting something, and a piece flicks up from the saw blade, bounces off and under your glasses, and gets caught between your eyelid and your eye, and it hurts. And it's annoying, and you just want it out of there. Sometimes it's worse, and that fragment actually gets stuck, and you have to have a doctor remove it for you. That's the picture that Jesus is using here. But the person who wants to help them has a log in their eye. The, the word used for log means a rafter. Think about your house for a minute. Or a cross beam. Think about those timber-framed houses with the big, yeah. Or a trunk of a tree minus the limbs. That's a log. You get in the picture? It's dimensional lumber. They even have a category for that at Menards, dimensional lumber. The best I can figure out, looking at this, the information in Scripture and commentaries, that we're talking about a piece of wood that's probably greater than two and a half inches in diameter. Just reference point, about like this. I don't want to get gory, but think about that for a minute. This is in your eye. My inquiring mind says, how does it stay put? <laughs> you would be dead. If we're really honest, you'd be dead. Or at the very least, unable to see. Fair? And, this is the, per and, and the person isn't even aware. I can't figure that one out. Or they're totally choosing to ignore it. And I can't figure that one out either. You know that last fall, my lawnmower had an intersection with a landscape staple, and it went into my leg. I was aware, because I couldn't move. And I wasn't ignoring the fact that it was there, because it was reminding me every time I shifted that it was there. And so do you see the absurdness that Jesus is pointing out of this judgmental person 
who has these huge issues trying to be the one who wants to help the other person. And, and, and even as you look at that, as they're trying to fix them, think about that. They've got a log in their eye, and they're trying to get close enough to you to take the speck out of your eye. It wouldn't just be bad. You'd be making things worse. You'd be smacking somebody with this log that's sticking out of your eye. That is pretty clear how absurd it really is. And the next thing Jesus says to this person, the person with the log in their eye, the person who's judgmental, the person who is condemning this other person, he calls them a hypocrite. Verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Hypocrites are fakes. They're actors. They're, they're people who have put on a mask and assumed a character that's not what they truly are. Putting on a show to try to impress others. They hide their real feelings or intentions by pretending that they're different. Their feelings are different than what they're really, they're portraying differently than what they really are. In this instance, their sin is so big and so obvious it's that it's apparent that they need help. But they're so lost behind their masks that they don't even notice. This is the type of judgment that Jesus is warning us about in verse 1. Hypocritically condemning others and excusing ourselves. That's judge not that you be not judged but I think there's still more. And that takes us to the legal crux, that thing that is really necessary to totally make it fit together, be absolutely clear with no doubts. Let's go back to chapter 5 for a minute. If you would, turn with me to chapter 5 of Matthew. And then we're going to move into chapter 6. I think Jesus set a framework in these verses that is important for us to use to understand verses 1 to 5 of chapter 7. And this will help us, I think, even more clearly get to judge not. And this contrast, this framework revolves around contrasts. So in chapter 5, if you look in verse 17, uh, not 17... Verse 21, Jesus has six thoughts that he sets up this way. You can see it in verse 21. You've heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder. Whosoever murders will be liable to judgment. And then he answers that with, but I say to you. Jesus is showing the contrast between the teachings of the religious leaders, Pharisees and the scribes, with what God really intended. You've heard it said of old, but I say to you. Then in chapter 6, so we've got those contrasts. In chapter 6, Jesus addresses giving prayer and fasting. In verse 2, verses 2 and 3, essentially what Jesus says here is, don't give like the hypocrites. 
Don't give to draw attention to yourselves. Don't give to be noticed. Give to meet needs. Do it in secret. Then we drop down to verse 5. And he says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't stand in the marketplace and pray long, loud, flowery prayers for others to notice. Go in your closet and pray to your father. And then in verse 16, he talks about fasting. Sean preached on. Don't fast like the hypocrites. Don't make yourselves look gloomy. Don't be all dour and sad and dejected. Wash your face. Glorify God. He shows the heart attitudes. I think that's the framework that Jesus is working through because we're in the same passage, the same message, the same continuation of thought when we get to verse 5. And Jesus tells the person with the log in their eye, the hypocrite, to take out their own log first in order to see to help their brother. Here's why I think this is the point that's important to make this make sense. With one possible exception, the only people that Jesus ever called hypocrites were the Pharisees and scribes. And so if we back up into what we just read, where he's telling them, don't pray, don't fast, don't give like the hypocrites, where he's saying, you've heard it said of old, but I say to you, Jesus is pointing out the hypocrisy and the emptiness of what the religious leaders are doing. That they are actors with masks on who are not what they're pretending to be and not what they want others to see. Uh, in Matthew chapter 15, it says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? He continues on. He goes down to verse 7. He says, You hypocrites, and talks of Isaiah prophesying about them. In Matthew 22, Verses 15 to 18, he talks to the Pharisees who at this time were banded with the Herodians, which is another strange thing because they hated each other. The Pharisees thought that the Herodians were sellouts. They were political puppets. And yet we see them working together against Jesus. And again, Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites in verse 18. And if you would, please turn to Matthew 23. I think this is probably Jesus' harshest criticism of the scribes and Pharisees. Jump down to verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides. He's talking to the same people and a little bit of irony. 
you think about chapter 7, take the log out of your eye. Why are they blind? <laughs> They've got a log in their eye that they don't want to pull out. He calls them blind guides a couple of times there. Back to verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides. In verse 25, he calls them hypocrites again. And in verse 27, he calls them hypocrites again. And in verse 29, he calls them hypocrites again. In Mark chapter 7, verses 5 to 8, Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why don't your disciples walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat without washing their hands? Those evil disciples. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. Jesus calls the Pharisees and scribes pretenders who hide their true feelings and agendas, judging others while they excuse themselves. I believe that that's the legal crux to completely understand this. Don't give like the Pharisees. Don't pray like the Pharisees. Don't fast like the Pharisees. Don't judge like the Pharisees. Don't be proud and self-righteous and condemning and unwilling to honestly evaluate yourself. God will honestly evaluate you just like Jesus evaluated the Pharisees. We should continually ask the Holy Spirit to evaluate our hearts. And in doing that, to reveal any hypocrisy that's residing in us so that we don't judge like the Pharisees. Which leaves us with verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This verse is another reason that as I look at the use of hypocrite in verse 5, Jesus is specifically talking about the scribes and Pharisees and more broadly than about anyone who doesn't live honestly. Dogs and pigs are unclean. It would have been morally wrong for a Jewish person to give holy food to dogs. And that's what they're saying here. They're taking the food that's set aside for the priests and their families and feeding dogs with it. They would never do that. You wouldn't even give it to somebody who wasn't a priest. You certainly wouldn't do that to a dog. And it would be foolish and morally wrong to take something as valuable as pearls and give them to pigs. They don't understand value. They don't understand the worth of those. They're 
something that they would just trample into the mud of their sty. Just another thing that, uh, this isn't edible, so ignore it. The other thing with pigs is, my understanding, I've not raised pigs, they're ornery. They are not very kind animals, and they will turn on you and hurt you. And they're big enough to do a good job of that. And as I read that, I was reminded of the Pharisees and the way they treated Jesus. They mocked him. They scorned him. They reviled him. They ridiculed his teaching. It's exactly how they handled him. And, and look at what he says. Lest they trample him underfoot and turn and attack you. He knew their hearts. He knew what was coming. He clearly understood what was going on. Jesus cast out a demon. Well, yeah, but he's casting him out by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. He's not really God. Your disciples don't even keep the commandments. They're plucking grain and eating it as they walk through a field. Jesus, your disciples obviously don't get it. You're not teaching them very well. They didn't wash their hands before we ate. They discarded and trampled and ridiculed his teaching, and they turned on him and plotted to have him killed. As we look at this passage, judge not that you be not judged. Jesus didn't treat sinners judgmentally. He didn't condemn them. He honestly, without hypocrisy, showed them their sin, and he showed them the solution, his death, burial, and resurrection. He showed them the hope that they have by putting their faith in him. He didn't judge like the Pharisees. So, remember the hyperbole. Make sure you got the log out of your eye first. Then, consider helping someone else. The chiasmus. The way you judge, the way you measure, is what's going to be judged and measured back to you. And the crux, that critical point, don't judge like the Pharisees. Humbly and honestly deal with your sin, then help others to see theirs and find the remedy in Christ. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.